you know, to me, I define it as the opportunity to live a normal life. Whether you do, you know, something amazing or whether you just live every day, like that is, that is the definition of survivor. And I think that, you know, not everybody gets that opportunity, unfortunately. You know, for me going through it as a kid, I looked at cancer as just one thing that I have to do in order to become a normal kid. And, you know, it was really hard as a kid to wrap your mind around, like, why do I have to do this and my friends don't? But I look at it as from the adult perspective and I see these people out there who've been diagnosed once, twice, three times, you know, they've gone through it multiple times. They have their family there. They've kept their support. They've kept their zest for life. They've kept all these things. And like, that is the definition of survivor. Like these people are living and living every day to the fullest. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold, say yes to adventure, say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout, Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Those people who have taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. You will agree, Brian Fletcher is one of those people. He's a two-time Olympian, 2014, 2018, won a bronze medal in the world championships, five world championship teams. But this is the big thing. He was a cancer survivor as a kid, had leukemia at three years old, is now actually a PA for one of the preeminent knee guys in the world, Dr. Cooley. And I guess I didn't mention his sport. He was a Nordic combined skier. We're going to learn more about what Nordic combined is. Brian, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Chris. Nordic Combined, can we start there? Because the thing is, I think that a lot of people, some of the people might have seen like 2010 with Billy and the team, but a lot of people don't know exactly what Nordic Combined is. What is Nordic Combined? Absolutely. So Nordic Combined is uh, the combination of ski jumping and cross-country racing into one sport. Um, it was kind of born uh, in Scandinavia and it it originated because both of them were quote unquote Nordic sports. They both had a free heel. So back in the day, um, somebody got together and said, Hey, you know what? We, we should see who's the best at Nordic sports. So let's create Nordic combined. Fast and forward to today. Long distance jumping, right? This is not yep. aerials. This is yep. going 120 meters plus kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So the, the ski jumping, the long distance jumping, and then the cross country racing and, um, you know, if you fast forward to today with that sport, it's uh, two polar opposite sports. You know, ski jumping is a you have to be light and lean and fast twitch and cross country. Well, we all know you have to have endurance and um, slow twitch muscle. And so it's uh, kind of the polar opposite of, of performance these days. But, uh, you know, it kind of makes for an exciting sport. And basically the way it works is uh, you jump first. Um, winner of the jumping gets to start at zero zero. And then after that, uh uh, you ski a 10 kilometer cross country race on average and the first person across the finish line wins. So it's the, the people who are the best jumpers have effectively a head start in the cross country skiing. And you often were a better skier than mm -hmm. you, at least toward the end of your career, a better skier than you were a jumper. So you were giving people a head start and then having to chase them down What's the mental part that goes into, because I remember being on a jump as a kid, like 90 meter over at Lake Placid, watching guys go off of this and thinking, I'm scared and I'm not going anywhere. You're up at the top of this rickety looking, I mean, granted, it's not going to blow over or anything, we don't think, but but it's not a whole lot on there where you're sitting on the sitting on the board and ready to go and it's just two little slots there's no there's no exit like if you're committed once you go you're completely committed what goes through your mind at the top of a jump yeah i mean it's it's interesting because you know as i started out in the sport i started at a young age and um i never really thought about it like that i just saw the jumps and was like man those are the biggest jumps in the world that's what i gotta do and, uh, you know, you start small and you progress your way up, but certainly there's no, there's no stopping once you commit to go off the jump, you're in a track and in today's sport, uh, there are artificial tracks that are made out of refrigerated ice. You couldn't get out of it if you wanted to. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a little bit scary, but 
you know, going through the mind, it's, it's, uh, initially it starts out as fun. You know, I started out and it was just the, the thrill of flying that drew me to the sport. Um, and as you got better, uh, that feeling kind of sticks with you because, you know, I started noticing that like, as I got better at the sport, you're jumping farther with less in run speed. And, um, that, that made it that feeling of flying even better. And so I just kind of, you kind of get addicted to it where you're like, man, I'm, I, I'm flying through the air. I'm going further and further. And so you're at the top of the hill. You're thinking about your technique. You're thinking about all the things that you're going to do in order to have a jump where you get as much lift as possible and, you know, reduce your drag as much so you can fly as far as you possibly can. And, and it never got old every day that I was on the hill, you know, certainly had frustrations at times and, um, trials and tribulations throughout the years, but that feeling of flying never gets old. How long were you in the air? I mean, they talk about distance, but they don't necessarily talk about hang time as yeah. much. How long were you in the air? Because you really were flying. Yeah, and it, it depends a little bit on the hill size and the way the hills are designed. But um, for the most part, you know, you can be in the air anywhere from three to five seconds, maybe even longer. Um, and uh, it's it's just like this feeling that you can't shake off, especially in the air. I mean, you have full control of what you're doing and you can feel when you when you get headwind and get lift and you can feel when you get tailwind and it sucks you down towards the hill. And, you know, you're trying to navigate all those those changes in air pressure as you're flying through the air, which is just super fun. So you jump and then you have to ski, which is an entirely different group of muscles. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's entirely different mentality, too. Right. I mean, how yeah. do you shift from one to the other or is it? some of the of the uh you know the the uh the sheet of of like you know this is where you this is how far you flew that determines you know does that get you fired up you're like okay i just gave away 50 seconds 60 seconds 90 seconds i'm ready to go as hard as i can i want to go catch these little guys who've flown a long way Certainly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's that element to it of like, you know, the jumping is over in a heartbeat. And so it's a very much like you either perform or you don't. And there's, I think initially the first thing that happens is either like an elated feeling when you jump really well, like a, almost like a relief. You're just so relieved that you jumped well and you're in a good position and the cross country race is still ahead. And then there's the opposite side of that, which is like, you know, it goes over, it doesn't go the way you want and you kind of have your heart sink and you're just bummed out because all of a sudden now you're in 50th place and you have a 10 kilometer race and you're three minutes back and you got to make it up and, you know, try and get some points or at least salvage the day. And that's really difficult to do. And I think that, um, you know, the mentality for the cross country side kind of changes based off of that strategy. Like, am I going to go out and ski a solo time trial from the back of the pack or am I going to, you know, play tactics today? Am I going to be in a dog fight where there's going to be a lot of, you know, pushing and shoving and, and what we always say, you know, racing is rubbing, you could be in the pack and doing all that stuff. So some of the mentality changes based off of where you end up after the jumping and, and it quickly becomes a strategy thing where you're looking at the result sheet, seeing who's around you, what good skiers are you with and who's ahead of you that you might be able to catch and when you need to make moves. Um, so it really becomes like a calculated strategy almost immediately as soon as you see the results after the jumping competition. And it's a lot like bike racing in that respect, right? If there's somebody fast around you, do you have somebody to work with yeah. that then you can work together and try and reel in the people who are in front of you? And then, yeah, you might potentially get to a point where it is a pack finish and you have to, one, if you haven't jumped well, you have to catch up to the pack. Mm-hmm. And then you have yeah. to save enough that you can be strategic within the pack that it's not a moral victory of, well, I caught the pack. It's like, okay, can I save enough that I can actually do something and make some noise when I get there? Is that the exciting part for you? Like the, the strategy is. or? Yeah, it is. And and like you kind of said in the intro, you know, I, I, in the later part of my career, I got better at the cross country side of it. And, you know, just to kind of put it in perspective, I think ski jumping is somewhat of a um, like golf, like, you can practice all you want. You can play golf every day, but it doesn't mean you're going to get any better. There is just like that limit to it sometimes. And there's not a direct correlation between how much you practice and how good you're going to get. Um, and certainly the higher you get in the performance category of golf is like an exponential increase, right? 
Um, it takes that much more work to get that much better. Well, ski jumping is very similar to that, but cross country on the other hand is, is very correlated. Certainly there's natural talent in your endurance capacity, but the work you put into it is the work you're going to get out of it. There's always, you're always going to see improvement. And so for me, you know, on the cross country side of things, as I got better and better, the older I got in the sport, um, you know, I knew that I had that to fall back on. So somewhat it was, for me, it was somewhat comforting to know that like, no matter what I can go out and I can push myself to the absolute limit. And I am going to be one of the top guys out there on the course today. And, you know, it, it, it kind of was reassuring to know that I had the potential to make up a minute and a half, two minutes on guys sometimes. And so, you know, knowing that it kind of at times took the pressure off of jumping and made it a little bit easier for me. So yeah, I appreciated that aspect of it. Made it a little easier for you. It's funny because I mean, like I, I raced wheelchairs and I know you you uh, ride bikes and stuff like that, too. You know, where it, it's kind of a funny situation because sometimes it seems like there are those people who are really good at going downhill. And the analogy might be that the jumping is the downhill, but then there are the people who are really good at going uphill. And yes, you are faster going uphill, but you also have to work that much harder and hurt that much more in order to realize your your gains right so yeah i guess you have to enjoy that too right yeah absolutely i mean the uphill side of it is is a challenge and i think that you know like in bike racing and and chair racing and stuff like that it is you can take that risk on that downhill to get that three to five seconds or whatever it may be and it's a lot of work but it's also high risk if you crash you lose minutes and um on the on the cross country side on the uphill it's like well if i can get you know 30 seconds on an uphill or a minute on an uphill that is going to be a much bigger time difference but certainly to get there it's a much harder process a much longer process you know somebody can become good at descending fairly quickly but you don't get good at going uphill overnight it takes time and a lot of investment to get there and and so when i started you know really clicking in the cross country side of things for me that was like you know, hard work paying off and, and kind of reassuring that, like, I knew that, you know, in a race, like I had that trick in my bag to be able to use, which was nice. <laughs> Definitely. Now it was the jumping that hooked you. Right. But mm -hmm. in what I've read, you were going through chemotherapy. Yeah. So there's a bit to unpack in terms of one, the jumping and then the cross country skiing all mixed in with the chemotherapy as a little kid how did how did it work that you were going through chemotherapy and you convinced your parents that it was a good idea to yeah, let you absolutely. go off of a ski jump yeah so i i grew up in steamboat colorado it's a small town northwestern colorado and um you know it is a very much a uh winter sports community of the steamboat springs winter sports club which you know, the ski jumps are right downtown. So when I was first diagnosed, um, I was, you know, obviously an avid skier. My dad had me on the mountain as much as possible. And I remember at that time, I was one of those kids that just liked to hit the bumps and jumps on the side of the trail. So, you know, he'd always try and get me to do downhill turns and make these beautiful arcs. And I was like, nah, it's cool. I'm just going to go straight and hit that jump. And, you know, he would tease me for it. But um, yeah, I, I, was kind of diagnosed and a little while into my treatment, I decided, you know, um, I wanted to try ski jumping and there was this learn to ski jump night down at Hallison Hill. And so I was like, that's what I want to do. And, you know, I begged my parents cause I kind of had this, you know, newfound negotiating tactic being that I was going through cancer and stuff. I could kind of guilt trip them into letting me try something. So they agreed and, and signed me up. You know, they talked to the doctors and the doctors like, well, it's not a good idea, but you know, do what makes him happy and, and let him try it, you know, not thinking that it was going to turn into anything. So I went out and I hit these jumps and I was hooked. Like it was the best feeling in the world and flying through the air. And, you know, I went out and I tried, I started on the smallest jump and took a few there. I was like, that was really fun. And they're like, Oh, you want to go up to the next level? And I was like, yeah, of course. Can I? And they're like, yeah, of course. So went up, jumped a little bit bigger hill. And that was like, again, the same like rush. And it was, you know, much bigger and, and they're like, okay, go try the next one. And one, you know, once I got up to the next one, it was just like full on flying through the air. So I got done with that learn to jump night and uh, told my parents, like, I, you have to sign me up for this program. So of course they went and asked one of the coaches, like, Hey, how do we sign up? You know, can we sign up next year for the program? And like, 
sure, just head into the office. You can sign up. You can start tomorrow. They weren't expecting that side of it. So I signed up and started the next day and, um, you know, kind of went through the program and it was became this powerful dichotomy for me because I was doing treatment down at Children's Hospital in Denver. And so it kind of worked out where I would go down for treatments and I would have to miss jumping. And it made me sad that I was missing jumping and made me motivated to just do everything the doctors asked as quickly as possible. So we might get out of the hospital, you know, a little bit sooner and I might get back to jumping. But conversely, when I got back to Steamboat, it was, um, you know, I was a normal kid in my winter stuff. You know, I, they couldn't see that I had bald hair. They couldn't see that, you know, I was bald and had no hair. They uh, couldn't see the port in my shoulder. They couldn't see any of that. And they just, you know, thought I was a normal kid. So out there on the hill flying through the air, I wasn't thinking about all the things I was going through. I was just a happy-go-lucky kid. And I think that that distraction was super powerful for me and really worked well in my treatment um, and kind of gave me some support along the way. Something to live for. And you were, so this is when you were six years old, right? And the leukemia diagnosis was when you were three? Yeah. So I was diagnosed at three and I started the sport when I was about four years old. And um, yeah, by uh, I did a three years of intensive chemotherapy. Um, and so by the time I was about six is right when I was about starting to get to the end of my treatment and into my remission study. I did a two year remission study to make sure the cancer didn't come back. And so, you know, it was like started out as every month I would go down to the hospital, then every other month. And then it was like, okay, you know, every six months and finally got the all clear and it was just the best feeling in the world. I'm sure. Were you weak though? I mean, you, you say that it gave you something to look forward to. It gave you the chance to be a normal kid, which there's, there's so much in that, isn't it? Just like the health of your mind, the health of your being, hoping to help eradicate this cancer. But weren't you weak? I mean, you're pouring poison into your body. You're, this is a little body that doesn't have a whole lot of, whole lot of ability to fight back at the time. Yeah, certainly. And, and I was diagnosed in 1990. And, and back then, you know, I was in a like quote unquote experimental protocol for pediatric cancers, you know, new treatments and it worked wonders and it ended up becoming kind of the standard of care. Um, and now, you know, today is of course it's much better even, but um, yeah, at the time they were pouring adult sized doses of chemotherapy drugs into children and hoping, you know, they would get better. And, and the principle behind that is, you know, kids can handle a lot more. They're a little bit more resilient than adults are. Um, and we have that, that drive and the cell turnover to be able to do it. So, um, it was definitely times where I was super weak and fatigued and, you know, had to take days off, but I think, you know, that mental release of being out there and getting to do the thing you love and that just the fun you were having overpowered the fatigue by a long shot. Uh, and there were days definitely when I didn't get off the couch or wasn't able to do the things I wanted to do, or wasn't allowed to because my counts are too low. But there were any day that I could get out there, I was definitely out there. Did any of the other kids know what was going on? I'd imagine that some of them did, some of your good friends. Yeah, for sure. A lot of kids did. And, and you know, most kids are super supportive. I mean, I remember I kind of had this like Ninja Turtle mentality of like, just embrace it. Like you are who you are. And, um, you know, the Ninja Turtles to me were this this thing. So I remember this one story where, you know, I went to preschool and Obviously, you know, I was bald. I was going through this thing. I kind of looked funny, you know, swollen from all the chemotherapy meds and steroids and whatever. And I I remember just dressing up and painting my head green and going as a Ninja Turtle on the first day of preschool. And just like kind of the idea of embracing what you're going through and, you know, making it approachable to other kids. And so, yeah, definitely a lot of kids knew what I was going through. But, you know, everybody was super supportive. And, um, you know, I was happy to answer questions, which I think kind of destigmatized the whole thing for a lot of kids that I was surrounded by in the community. Which turtle were you? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I have no idea, but I, if I had to guess, it was probably Michelangelo, but I have no idea. Funny. Now, you so they were pouring adult doses of chemotherapy into you. Did you know what the side effects might be? And my orientation from this is really from reading Lance Armstrong's book, right? Where he was so exhausted because he was a professional cyclist. And if he was going to live, he wanted to return to being a professional cyclist, didn't want to compromise the lungs and the heart and the engine effectively 
that you had as a cross-country skier, how much did you know about what those side effects would be and how much did they compromise your ability to, you know, your cardiovascular system, your ability to be the engine that was pushing you to catch up and pass a lot of these people in the, in the Nordic, in the cross country side of it? Yeah. I mean, good question. And, and like, as a kid, I don't think I had a full grasp of what the side effects would be. And, um, you know, it was, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, when you're in that situation, you don't really care. It is what it is. And you're going to take those meds regardless because it's life or death. Right. And so, you know, going through it, there, certainly there was, you know, you hear today a lot more about the side effects and as a kid, you know, you have, um, the swelling, the fatigue, the, the cell counts days where you can't leave the hospital. Um, and you know, I've done a little bit of research into this as I've gotten older. I mean, adolescent young adults who go through this, I mean, it's, it's, it's striking. It's, it's not what side effect you're going to have, but, uh, or when you're, if you're going to have side effects, it's what side effects you're going to have. It's just part of it. And so going through that, you know, um, there's always that question in the back of your head. Is this, is this going to be a side effect of the medication or, um, am I at risk for other things that I, you know, as I get older and as I age, you know, you always wonder those questions, but, um, I never, I never thought too much about it as a kid. Certainly as I got older, I definitely, you know, reflected on it a lot more and felt like, man, you know, I went through this whole thing and yet here I am with some of the world's best competitors. And, you know, I'm kind of known for my cardiovascular capabilities and, you know, some of the medications that I'm certainly took when I was a kid are, you know, uh, toxic for the heart, toxic for the lungs, toxic for the kidneys. And, um, you know, so it's amazing to think that a kid can go through something like that and still reach the top of their sport. And even more amazing when adults do it. It's just a, it's a, it's, it's really cool to see that when people do it. When people do it. Yeah. But did you see, I mean, cause, cause you're talking about infinitesimal differences really, when you get to the top of your sport and it becomes so scientific, right. That, yeah. you know, that, that it is it is this amount of output that you're going to put in you know that that and that translates into these kinds of times these kinds of splits i mean you it's not like you don't have an idea when you go into a race where you're going to be you have a pretty decent idea within a relatively small confidence interval did you see those side effects play out when certainly at times competing yeah i think at times you know i often wonder like you know, if you look at my brother compared to me, you know, I'm a, sh a little bit shorter and he's a little bit taller. Right? So there's certainly times where I wonder like, hey, could I have had some stunted growth because of this? Or could I have had, you know, changes in my muscle composition or things like that? But, um, you know, I never really sought bear any any weight in my adult career as as sport. But certainly as an adolescent, you wonder um, how far am I going to be able to take this? You know, where is that limit going to hit? And where, where is that straw going to break of where I, you know, find that breaking point or that tipping point of how I can't do it any longer. Um, thankfully for me, it just, I never hit that spot. And, you know, certainly I wonder if that is a difference between, you know, how I maybe was like a good skier and maybe not a great skier. Could I have won more world cups or could I have performed at a higher level more consistently um, certainly there's things like that, that I often wonder, you know, if that is a side effect of, uh, having so much treatment as a kid, but for the most part, you know, I just tried to not think about that as an athlete and just go out and perform my best. Control what you can control really, because these other things, they can drive you crazy, but they're not going to, you're not going to get a definitive answer off of it. Yeah. You said the jumping hooked you. Mm -hmm. When did you go from jumping to Nordic combined. And was that, was that a difficult, you know, like, Hey, okay. You know, we hooked you on this really sexy part of it. You get to go off this big jump and go fly. And now we want you to work really hard. And, you know, just, I mean, you watch Nordic skiers finish and what happens at the finish of every Nordic race is it's just a litter of, of casualties almost. It looks like, I mean, everybody, falls and they're just chests are heaving and noses are running and 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 all of this and they can barely get back up 
when did somebody say, hey, we want to take you from the sexy jumping and we want to move you into this uh, this land of like frozen snot and that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, it was actually by accident. So I had a bunch of friends that were doing the ski jumping and I was doing it and I was having a great time and all my friends signed up for Nordic Combined and they just said, oh yeah, they're all doing the full thing. They're doing the Nordic Combined this year. And I said, sweet, sign me up. I want to do it too. And then they handed me a pair of cross country skis and I was like, uh, this is not what I was expecting, but it was pretty much too late. I'd already signed up. I'd already paid the dues, you know, at that time and and I hopped on the skis and went out and gave it my best. And I was like, well, this sucks. But then, you know, I kind of stuck with it because my friends were there. And so we'd be, you know, a little bit more time at practice and things like that. And then we started competing. And I, I realized like fairly quickly that, hey, I have kind of a knack for this. Like the technique seems to come becoming easy for me. And, you know, I have the endurance capacity a little bit. And I kind of enjoyed getting lost in the woods a lot. Um you go out to these cross country courses and, and you would head out in the woods and these trails would just lead for kilometers and through the woods. And I kind of found that super peaceful and yeah, it was hard work and tiring, but at the same time, it was like, you know, serene. And it, once you got better and better, you could go further and further. And it was just like this peaceful thing. And it, ultimately it kind of became this Zen thing for me where I enjoyed the challenge of cross-country skiing. I enjoyed the environment that I was in and I enjoyed, you know, the pushing myself to the limits aspect of it on race day. Um, and especially the, the tack rate, the tactical racing, as I got, you know, better and better and you start racing in packs, like we were kind of talking about, you know, I really love that, that challenge of like, you know, out strategizing somebody else and, and seeing who, who can make the move at the right time or who has the endurance to be able to go for another lap, you know, that side of it was always super fun for me. And as a younger kid growing up every year, it was like a mystery. How much better am I going to get? Am I going to get better? And it was so rewarding to train all summer long through the heat, through, you know, days that you didn't want to train when all your buddies were down at the pool, relaxing or doing those kinds of things. And you come into that season and you ski a, a personal best time in a race, or you beat some, figure that you uh, kind of look up to. It's just like the best feeling in the world. And, I, and I'll never forget that. And that's kind of what drew me to it as like, okay, this isn't just a uh, thing I want to do with my friends anymore. This is a thing I want to do all the time. And cross-country skiing is one of the most grueling sports in that you're using two, two systems at the same time, right? Using your upper body and your lower body, which you're not really doing in most other sports. Did the experience of going through chemo as a little kid of experiencing, because pain is more profound when you're younger, right? When you don't have any point of reference, did, did that help you? Was it a, was it a motivation? Was it even a consideration? I think it did help. I mean, I think that going through that as a kid proved to me that I can do hard things for one. Um, it taught me to believe myself, you know, as well. So um, and then the cross country side of things, I think that correlated because, you know, I learned how to, you know, like, for example, as a kid going through chemo, you get used to needles real quick. And I hated needles. And I'm still not a huge fan of them, uh, or at least getting my blood drawn. I poke people every day. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, how am I going to get through this? And you, you rationalize with yourself and you figure out a strategy of how you're going to coach yourself through it. And I think cross country was kind of the same thing. It's hard, but as soon as I learned that I could coach myself mentally through something that is challenging, the cross country became easier. So that, that pain, that challenge became, okay, how far can I take this, you know, and how much longer can I do it? And I think back to my early days on the world cup, um, skiing and, you know, of course I was starting from a little bit further back in the pack, but I would ski with a bunch of guys and see how it was going. And if I was holding my own, I would jump to the next group and I would ski up and catch that next group. And then I remember sitting there being like, okay, I've caught him. Let's take some deep breaths. Let's breathe through this, get into the groove of things again, see if I can stay with this pack. And then you get there and you, you breathe and you get in the rhythm again. And you realize like, Hey, I got more in me. I can go to the next one. And you ski through that pack and up to the next one. And then you sit there and you're like, okay, take stock of where you're at, how much pain you're in, how much reserve you think you have. And then 
all of a sudden you realize like, I got more, let's keep going. And so I kind of kept doing that through cross country and, and it was using that mentality of like, you know, I did when I was a kid, how can I coach myself through this, um, this challenge in order to get to that end result? What's the stuff that you would say to yourself in terms of coaching, the coaching yourself into, I'm not going to say liking needles, but not hating needles. Yeah. I mean, certainly um, as a kid, there was no other option. So for that, that thing was, for me, it was inevitable. Like I have to get my blood drawn today. So it was like, okay, I'm going to get through this. And then my parents will, you know, give me some sort of treat, I'm sure, you know, so I was like, okay, I got to get through this to get to the other side. So it started out as that. But um, as it progressed, it was like, I think the motivator came, you know, the nurses would be like, oh, you're so tough. And then once they said that, it was like, oh, I'm tough. Well, I'll show you how tough I am. And then it was like, okay, how many pokes can I do today? You know? And so it, it kind of became like this, this reassuring and, and um, affirmation thing that would happen where you're like, well, I'm tough. The nurses say I'm tough, so I must be tough. Like I can do this. And it, it, you start to challenge yourself. Like I'm going to prove how tough I am. And then on the cross country side of things, as I got older, it was, you know, you, you realize like, okay, I can do this for one, for two, you know, I would always tell myself little tricks, like, uh, like, you know, that child's book, the little engine that could, like, I think I can, I think I can just those little things of saying, like, I can, I can hold on 10 more seconds. I think Billy DeMong, you know, said to me one time, he's like, when I get in a pack, Sometimes I just tell myself, hang on 10 more seconds. And then I get, I'd count to 10. And when I got to 10, okay, 10 more seconds. And he would just kind of do those things. And for me, it was like, okay, I'm here. And I'd look around at the guys around me and look at their faces and realize they're hurting just as much as I am. And it was like, okay, I'm tough. I can do this. And I'd breathe through it and just be like, relax, get comfortable here. And then you realize like, oh, this isn't so bad. I can keep going. And you get better at it the more you do it. Yeah, your threshold for it gets higher and higher and your and your ability to um, be resilient in that moment gets higher, you know, so it's like, you go through the first couple times you do that and you hang on like, one 10 second interval. And you're like, well, I, I hung with, you know, Hanu Monadin for 10 seconds, who was like one of the greatest guys in our sport for the longest time. And I remember like, skiing with him for 10 seconds, the first time you're like, man, he, he must have you know, been skiing like crazy. And I hung with him for 10 seconds. I bet that cut 30 seconds off my time today or whatever, you know? And then the next time you go out and you ski with him for 30 seconds, you're like, holy cow. And then the next time, you know, you, you're with him for the whole race or beating him. And it's just like, so that kind of stuff. And that happened with numerous guys throughout my career where, you know, figures that I looked up to that it was like realizing that I'm starting to get closer and closer to on par with them. And that not only am I able to ski in a race with them but you look around and you're you're skiing with them not you know against them not uh getting passed by them but you're actually skiing with them and, and playing strategies and tactics and that that was super rewarding for me suddenly they were looking at you as opposed to you looking at them yeah i mean you're that new kid that just showed up that fresh young kid with a you know talent and you know it's kind of that fear i mean i remember kids coming onto the scene and just you know you think you got them in the bag and then all of a sudden they just stomp you to the ground and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? And, uh, you know, so it's definitely that reward when you're younger and you're kind of, um, I don't want to say ignorant in a way, but you are ignorant. Like you're, it's just blissful. Like I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my best and I'm going to have fun doing it. And you don't have those expectations. You don't have those pressures on you. You're just going out there to be the best that you can be. And that's, that's the best that athletics can be. Is it reward oriented? You mentioned it a couple of times that that when you were first a kid, that your parents would would give you some treat afterwards. You know, maybe this was ice cream or whatever it was. But then it was the nurses going, "You're tough," and then you recognizing that you were tough. It, is that it, is it reward oriented when you're putting in this work, or do you have to play some mind games? Are there times that you go, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make this hurt as much as possible? Because sometimes it seems like if you try to make it hurt as much as possible, you can never quite get there, as weird as that sounds too. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. You can never quite get there. And I think that for me, it was, um, I think the hard days came in the training aspect of it. Racing was fun. And when you get out in the race, everything just starts to flow. You know, you're in that mindset of like, I'm going for it. I'm going to put myself in the hurt locker. Training were the hard days. When you wake up in the morning, 
you're tired from weeks of training on end and you have, you know, four hours of endurance training and intervals in the afternoon. And you're just like, I don't want to do this. I'm tired. The weather's crappy. It's raining. It's snowing, whatever it may be. It sucks. And so for me, kind of pushing through those days were the challenge and like, you know, the reward for me where I was like, I need to push myself through this. If I can get through this training day, then when I get to race day, it's going to be easier. And that was certainly true. The summers were arduous, long training days. In the winter, it would fly by. And every weekend when things start to click, it, you're pushing yourself to the max, but you can never quite reach that max because you put in so many hard days in the summer before. And I think that was a reward for me, knowing that like, okay, I trained hard all summer and here's my payoff. Like I'm going to race hard. I'm going to put myself in the hurt locker and I'm going to hurt some guys doing it that was really rewarding for me to be able to know that like I had that ability. Um, and certainly there were days where it didn't pay off, but you know, it was like, okay, you know, that day didn't pay off, but it was still hard work. And so when things started to turn around and click again, it, it always paid off and was always so rewarding. Well, it sounds like you came to it really quickly to, to the nature of the sport. When did you recognize that you could be, somebody good i mean granted you grew up in a place like steamboat right so you do get a chance to see olympians around you it's not as much of a separation as seeing them on television you might see them around or training or whatever but when did you get to think that hey i might actually be able to go somewhere with this yeah that's a great question i think um well i mean to take it back a second you know i, I steamboat you're right. Like you grow up around Olympians, you see them training every day, you understand the hard work that goes into it. And so, you know, from that side of it, that's where my aspiration to push the sport, you know, into, okay, I'm going to make, it started with, okay, I want to make junior worlds. And then it was like, okay, I want to make uh, national championships. Okay. Now I want to be on the U S ski team, you know, those kinds of things. Um, those stepwise goals kind of come naturally when you have that pipeline of, of talent around you. Um, and then, you know, kind of moving forward, um, I think it was like my freshman year of high school that I kind of had a breakout moment. At, at that year, I was a pretty good jumper, pretty good cross-country skier, but not definitely not the best guy. I was probably pretty average. But that year, I put in a lot of work, and I did a lot of training to get better at the jumping. And that next year, I came out and just started crushing it on the jump hill. And it was kind of a surprise to my coaches. It was a surprise to me for sure. Um, and it was super rewarding. I mean, I won a bunch of competitions. I did really well. And that was kind of the first moment that I realized, like, you know, I took a step from being like not even considered for a junior worlds team to like almost making junior worlds and actually like kind of letting people down when I didn't that year because I was just that high of a ranking. Um, so that was like the first inkling that I was like, okay, maybe I can take this a little bit further. Fast forward a few years down the road, got named to the national team, um, and started skiing well and made my first world championships in the first year that I was competing and had a great opening to the season that year. Um, and it was the 2006, uh, Sapporo world championships or 2007 world championships. And I, I had a great opening season um, where I did really well, scored a bunch of Continental Cup points right off the bat that year and was kind of like, yeah, I'm going to make this. And I had this big ambition to like crush the second period of the, the competition season. And I went out and I just got demolished. Like every race, just putting so much pressure on myself, like mentally beat myself before I even showed up to the hill. And then, you know, one of the coaches said to me that year, he's like, you just need to relax. Your season's not over yet just kind of like that affirmation. Like, I know you're struggling and I know you really want to prove yourself, but like, you just need to relax. Things are going to come. It's not over yet. And then that took the pressure off just enough where I was able to like relax. And then it clicked and I made the world championship team and started skiing better again and just totally blew myself out of the water world championships, jumping and skiing. And so that was a moment where I was like, okay, I belong on the national team. And then when I won my first world cup, um, I actually take it back first top 10 in the world cup was a moment for me that was like solidified me on the world cup stage. Where was from this? There, that was in, um, 2011, probably in Ramsau, Austria. I got a seventh place 
And at the time I looked up to my coach, Dave Jarrett immensely. And uh, he came to me after that finish and he's like, you just beat my best time in, you know, or my best finish in a world cup ever. And, and to me, that was like, holy cow, I've made it, you know, but that breaking that ice into getting into that top 10 just started a steamroll of like, uh, of top 10 finishes for me. And it started like seventh and then it was sixth and then it was fifth and then it was fourth. And I remember the day before I won my first world cup, I asked Bill DeMong, I'm like, you know, what, what places did it, did you get before you won your first world cup? And he said, I think I was like seventh, seventh, fourth. And then I won. And I was like, Oh, crazy. And, uh, I I'll never forget this moment. I won the King's cup in 2012. It's, uh, in home and colon. It's the longest running world cup in Nordic history. And went out that day, last world cup of the season, the day before I had finished, you know, uh, okay, not great, but I was like, well, I'm not going to get on the podium this year. I'd finished fourth in the weekend before in Librats, And I was like, that was my best finish to date. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, it's just not in the cards that I'll get on the podium this year, but that's okay. Went out and had a great morning. It was sun shining last comp of the year, crushed the jumping. Second round was canceled because of the warming weather for the jumping. And I was like sitting there in fourth place going into the cross country race and was like holy crap i have a shot at the podium here but it was only like 45 seconds back to the chase group and i was like if i play my cards right i can i could maybe get a podium finish here but it was definitely not for sure and there were all the strongest skiers in one group in the pack behind me and so i was just like i just need to focus on me and not worry about that and i had i kind of came up with this strategy which we can talk about but um at that moment i was just like well let's just see what happened Long story short, I won that day. And um, that moment for me was like, I belong here. And just all the hard work that you put in paid off. And I knew that from that moment forward, I had a few more years of skiing in me at the top level. Did you decide that you were just going to go out and time trial and go all on your own and pick up the people in front of you and and go as fast as you could. And if they ran you down, they ran you down. Yes. And no, this was actually the first race that I didn't just say, I'm going to do a solo time trial and see how far I can get up, you know, try and negative split and all that, like, and just ski the hardest I can. This was the first race where I looked at the negative split, meaning that you were going faster in the second half than you'd gone in the first half. Exactly. So normally for endurance sports, you're always trying to negative split. You want to start slow, finish fast. Right. And when you're solo, excuse me, solo skiing, that's what you got to do. You got to be, you know, sitting there uh, and your first lap's got to be a little bit slower so you can pick up the pace. And as more and more people get tired, you have more in the tank to catch them. Um, and this was the first race where I looked at the the field around me and I said, okay, I got a couple of good skiers, decent skiers with me, um, but they're not the best skiers. They're better jumpers. And then I had a uh, a huge gap, like, you know, 45 seconds or 40 seconds back to the best skiers in the pack, Miko Coxley and, um, um, Magnus Mon, Bill DeMong. Yeah. Just the list goes on and on. And they were just in this huge hurt train, which is normally where I would probably would have been. And I'm like, man, those guys are going to be going hard. So I looked at it and I said, okay, I got easy skiers with me. I'm going to go out with them and just feel them out. And then I said to myself, well, when is the most demoralizing point of the race? And it's the third lap, you know, cause we'd, we'd ski on a two and a half K course. So it's um, four laps of two and a half K for the 10 kilometer race. So I got to the third lap or I was going to go to the third lap. And I said, that's when I'm going to go hard and I'm going to go hard and I'm going to try and hold my time at least steady. You know, first lap, I'm like, I'm going to lose 10 seconds to the chase group. And then the second lap, I'll lose 10 seconds more. And the third lap, I want to put time back onto the chase group. And then I'll see what happens on the fourth lap. So I went out and it just executed perfectly. I was skiing with these guys and one by one, like the guys I was with just kind of fell off and the chase group made up 10 seconds and then 15 seconds. And then the third lap, I put like 10 seconds back into them. And it was just perfectly like demoralizing to the point where I was like, I think I have a shot at this. Little did I know, and this just shows the power of like believing in yourself and just your perspective, right? So I kept every lap we'd come into the stadium and I would look behind me to see where the chase group is. And every time I looked, they happened to go behind the biathlon uh, bulletproof glass, like shade where I couldn't see them. So I would look at it and be like the first lap. I thought they weren't even in the stadium. And I thought that was the gap to 45 seconds. So I'm like, man, 45 seconds, that's a huge way. And I only need like one second to win. Right. 
I just need that one second gap to, for me to be in front. So I'm like, I can lose, you know, 44 seconds. So I didn't see him there. And I keep skiing. I'm just believing in myself. And I, I, you know, I'm like, I got this, I got this. And then I did my splits perfectly, put a little time back on the group and then going into the fourth lap. One quick question. How much of a benefit is there to being in a pack? Like in cycling, there's a big benefit to being in a pack, right? Because you can draft and you can change the lead. And so a pack should go faster. Yeah, absolutely. An and it's a huge benefit in cross-country skiing too. The drafting, all those principles apply the same as cycling. You have drafting tactics, you have more people to lead and, and put on the chase. So, and I was solo with uh, one or two other guys in the front. And, you know, so we had a small group, but certainly no one was in a position to really put the hurt on and take the lead and take charge. So going into the last wrap, I come to the last hill and it's me and uh, three, two other guys. And we get to the last, uh, second to last hill and I attack and we get to the top of it. And it's just me and one other guy. And I'm like, I can't believe this. Like I'm fighting for a podium. And I remember uh, one of our supporters was there and he goes, he's like, this is your day. This is your day. And I'm like, and I believed him. Like I could sense it in his voice. Like in that moment, I decided like, this is my day. I'm going to win this day. And we went forward and get to the last hill and I attack and I just believe in myself and come around the corner and there's a whole bunch of the U.S. girls uh, ski jumpers standing on the sidelines and they're, and they're screaming and cheering. And instantly I hear the panic in one of their voices. And I'm like, oh man, she sounds scared. Like I better go. And so I, I start sprinting as hard as I can. And I look behind me and Miko Coxlian's less than two seconds behind me uh, charging for the finish. Had I not heard that, had I not believed, like, believed in myself in that moment, I certainly, certainly would not have been on the podium that day. And it's so funny because the mind can just play a trick on you. Those guys were much closer than I anticipated so much earlier in the race than I ever thought. But I believed in that moment, like, hey, I still have a chance here and they're not even close to me. If I had seen them, I would have been like, holy cow, they're close. I don't have this. I need to back off so I can fight in the pack. And so it just puts into perspective that uh, that that belief that you can have in yourself and how your mind can play tricks for you uh, in your favor. Well, panic can burn a whole lot of energy, can it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that that to today, I still remember that feeling of like hearing the panic in her voice and just picking it up. Like I was about to just kind of cruise in and take the win because I had already dropped the other guy. I knew I had a 10 second gap on him at least. And uh I just, I'll never forget that. And I decided to sprint from hearing her voice all the way to the finish, only to cross the line and look back and realize like that group was right there the entire time. Um, so just, yeah, it was a super surreal moment for me. When did you decide that you wanted to go into medicine? Was that, does that happen early? I mean, you spent so much time in hospitals, either you're going to go back to hospitals to work or you're never going to go back to a hospital. Yeah, that's, and that's a great uh, point. You know, I think growing up, I didn't anticipate ever going back into a hospital in any capacity. Um, certainly very grateful every, for everybody that, you know, I worked with when I was a patient, they were so amazing. Um, but as a kid, I, I always had kind of been drawn to science a little bit. I wouldn't say I was the best at it, but it was, it was interesting to me. And, you know, then athletics kind of took over and, you know, it wasn't my primary focus. Um, but as I started getting towards the end of my athletic career, I started thinking what's next for me and, you know, watched a lot of athletes go from that transition of being an athlete to trying to figure out what next in life and kind of struggle. And I, I told myself, like, I'm not going to do that. I want to be, you know, kind of on a pathway of having a second career lined up. So initially I was studying sports, uh, uh, health education and promotion with a health science emphasis and thought that I'd go into, you know, maybe sports science or um, something like that. And I quickly realized that the people that I wanted to work with in sports science, or if I was a coach, it's kind of the same problem as being an athlete. Like you're on the road a lot. You're going to be with the team a lot. And I knew that when you're young and single and they tell you, yeah, you're going to be on the road skiing for six months out of the year, you're super pumped. But when you're married with kids, it's like, okay, that's a little bit different story. Um, and so I was like, I just don't see myself being able to do the job that I want to do and, and do it the way I want to and having a family as a coach or in sports science. So then I started looking, okay, what other things can I do with my degree? And realized that like, hey, this is a pathway to medicine. 
maybe I can do something in medicine. And then I learned about the physician assistant profession and was like, man, that seems like a pretty cool gig. And so, yeah, jumped on that and started researching that and learning about it. And next thing I knew, I kind of asked some people and learned that I knew a bunch of PAs in the area. And so I asked them about their profession and um, everything that I was learning was just like phenomenal. And I was so interested in it. So I made a path uh, pathway forward and started taking the prerequisite classes and a, a plan to apply to PA school. And the day I retired in 2018, um, or I guess it was like two days after I retired, I flew home and uh, to Park City and uh, went down to Salt Lake and enrolled in my certified nursing assistant school, which is like a two week boot camp to get a license so I could start getting healthcare experience hours for PA school and um, just started jumping on it. And it's been a fascinating journey ever since. How old were you then? Um, let's see, I would have been uh, probably uh, 32 or 33 when I retired from skiing. I'm 36 now. Um, and so, yeah, I got to um, PA school in 2020 and uh, started there May of 2020. And so went to school through the whole pandemic thing, which was a journey and graduated this August. So, yeah. And this is with two kids as well right that you were going through PA school so you weren't sleeping much is what what I understand no I wasn't sleeping much and neither was my wife um you know a lot of late night studying a lot of going you know my wife worked full-time during PA school too as a nurse um, in labor and delivery so you know I got to give her props because she you know sacrificed a lot for us to be able to for me to do this um and, you know, it was definitely a balancing act. She would work weekends when I wasn't in school. And during the week I was in school. And then in the evening, we'd just tag team the kids. And then after the kids were to bed, I went go back and study as much as I could and get up the next morning, bright and early, try and cram any information I could before the tests and, you know, just keep pushing forward. So it was definitely a challenge and a lot of late nights. And did you have any time to procrastinate? Not as much as I would have liked. I I procrastinated by like taking my kids skiing or doing things like that as, as much as I could. Um, and I got a few days in the backcountry or a few days alpine skiing or cross-country skiing, but certainly not as much procrastination as I would have liked. And, and when you had to work, you had this set amount of time and this set amount of things that you needed to learn or you needed to do in order to, in order to keep moving forward and keep your head above water. Yeah. How much of it was... Going into PA school, because now, I mean, you're in a super competitive field, right? Being in orthopedic surgery and at one of the top top practitioners in, in the country, in the world, really. And how much of it is competitive? How much of it is wanting to give back? Because you do a, a variety of other things too, right? I mean, like we did Shred for Red, which is raising money for Leukemia Society last weekend, uh, CC Thrive. Uh, how much of how much of it is the competitive side? How much of it is the wanting to give back or are they exactly the same kind of thing? Not too much of it is the competitive side of things. I mean, certainly I'm a competitive person and, but I think more than anything else, like I love to do things well. And so PA school became a challenge for me, but also it was like, I, I wanted to do well in, in that and kind of master what I was learning. And certainly that's nearly impossible to do in medicine. Like you never master anything in medicine. And so, but I set out with the goal of like, I want to be as proficient as I possibly can. Um, and going through PA school, learning something new after being in the same sport in the same area for so long was so refreshing to be learning new things and just have things where it was almost humbling in a way to go from like an expert in one field to like, knowing nothing in another field and having to start at the bottom and work your way up and try and learn all this new information. And it was really motivating for me. Um, and so going into that and then combine that with the, the giving back, you know, I've always loved giving back. I think it was probably my first or second year on the U S ski team that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm on the team. I got a solid spot. I need to have a way to give back to people um, because I wouldn't be here without you know, the cancer community supporting me over the years. So I started just doing various run walks and, you know, helping out organize events and doing that kind of stuff. And then I got involved with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society doing team and training and, and little projects here and there. Um, and it just kind of spiraled. So 
you know, the giving back side of it was super rewarding for me, naturally, um, volunteering my time and, and seeing how much of an impact it makes on people's lives um, was really rewarding. So I just kind of like that aspect. And then I really like the appeal of being able to work in medicine and being able to give back to people in a way um, by providing care for them and to make that my profession. And so it kind of worked in that regard where I was motivated to learn because it was new information. I really enjoyed giving back. And now here was an opportunity that I could do it as a career. And so uh, that's kind of how I ended up where I am. And, um, you know, to be with uh, the orthopedic partners and Dr. Cooley is certainly humbling to be with those guys that are the masters of their field and as good as they are, but also a fantastic learning opportunity. So I'm grateful to be there. Where were you with regard to your fellow students when you were going through PA school? Because were a lot of them studying the whole time while you were out cross-country skiing and, and flying off of jumps? Well, I had retired at this point, so I was with them in the trenches studying, but I drew a lot of inspiration off of the jumping side of things. And I think my experience in athletics uh, really helped me to understand that work-life balance of it and also how to put in time and, and motivation studying, you know, understanding what's important and how to relate to patients and how to communicate with patients. Um, you get a lot of practice being uh, speaking and communicating with people as an athlete, right? So um, going into the, the PA school, the, I think the biggest challenge was going from training 10 hours a day to sitting 10 hours a day or, you know, not exercising 10 hours a day that was a challenge for me to like kind of change your whole identity and, you know, go from this world where it's like, man, you wake up and it's bright and sunny and you're going to go for like a seven hour endurance session. And then you're going to eat good food along the way. And then you're going to come home and take a huge nap and get up and do it again the next day. Like athletics is really selfish in a way. And it's um, really fun to do that kind of stuff. And here you are in, in another field and, you are responsible for people's health and you are responsible for learning this information and knowing it. And, um, it's a challenge. So I drew a lot of motivation and, and knowledge off of being able to, um, persist in, in those challenges throughout PA school from my athletic career. We talked a little bit about shred for red. Mm -hmm. What is shred for red and what is it? What does it do? Yeah. Great question. So shred, um, was founded five years ago um, by myself and a few other um, individuals who were involved with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And we got together and we had done team and training. We'd done a few things and we were like, man, there's no skiing fundraisers um, for cancer or, you know, for a lot of things, in fact. And I'd been involved in a few over the years. Um, there was one called Ski for Yellow, which was in Steamboat that benefited Livestrong Organization. Um, there was the Stars Mountain Challenge, um, which benefited the National Ability Center in Steamboat. Um, um, so kind of adaptive sports there. And then uh, I'd done one for ALS in Winter Park. And I, all of these events had like little pieces that were really good. And so I was like, man, it would be super fun to create, combine all those little pieces that were really fun into an event. And uh, I had talked to, at the time it was Stacy Culp. She was the uh, executive director of um, LLS Utah. And she had always expressed interest in creating a, a skiing event. And so we got together one afternoon and started brainstorming and then, you know, brought in a few more people and we we're like, okay, we have this idea. We have this idea for an event. Where are we going to do it? And so we, we started looking around for where we could potentially do it and um, happened to talk to Deer Valley and Deer Valley was like, yeah, we'd love to do it. Jumped on it and kind of spiraled from there so we we put the first year together not sure what to expect and the idea was okay let's have people raise money come out and do skiing mountain challenges you know fun day on the slopes and uh the top fundraisers will get to ski with olympians for the day and that was amazing and next thing we knew we're in our fifth fifth edition of the event and this year we raised uh four hundred and thirty five thousand dollars for leukemia and lymphoma society starting from seventy thousand dollars right in the first year yeah, the first year we raised $70,000 and we were, we were very happy with that. We're like, man, I, I think that's a success this year. And so we were like, you know, and it was like five of us on this organizing committee and we were just not sure what was going to happen and how many people we could get into it. But we, 
we believed that it would work and it just spiraled. I think it was like 70 and the next year was like 150,000. And then all of a sudden it was like 400,000 and then, you know, 415 and now, or it was maybe like even less than that the third year. And then the last two years we've broken the $400,000 mark and it's just been amazing. What is this doing for the survivors too? Like you're raising a lot of money, but there are a bunch of survivors who come out and ski. We all ski together, right? Yeah, it's awesome. You know, you're getting survivors to come together and you're getting community to come together to show that this money is going somewhere. You know, this money is going to treatments and the LOS has uh, had a hand in, in the approval of like, I mean, hundreds of treatments. And in the last couple of years, it seems like dozens, which in cancer, that's pretty rare. You don't tend to see a lot of movement very quickly. And it's it's been a kind of a snowball effect the last couple of years where we've seen a lot of really quick improvement. And it shows because you see people out on the slopes wearing their survivor bands and, you know, they're standing alongside people, their friends, their community who supported them along the way, but also recognizing that we have honored guests there, honored heroes, we call them, who are still going through treatment or, um, you know, have family members going through treatment. And so it, it puts it in perspective, like, hey, yeah, we've made it and we're lucky to be here, but there's also all these yet to go through this. And I think that is like a powerful motivator. Um, and coming from where I was, you know, diagnosed in 1990, I look at the treatments today and it's like, man, so much more effective, so much less toxic, so amazing. And, and you see it as a direct result of like, this is where that money's going. It is saving lives. It is, you know, helping people live healthier lives, having less side effects, you know, less disruption to their everyday life. And, and that's super powerful. And, you know, Chris, I got to thank you for coming out and supporting the event every year. It's super amazing. No, it's been great. I've, I've loved to do it. And it, it is a really interesting connection for me in that one of the survivors, uh, Leif uh, uh, Stolen, they bought my house. His parents bought my old house. So I have I have a, a real personal connection to these guys and end up skiing with them. And the interesting part, as you're talking about it, you know, the idea of survivor, I mean, like we understand, like we know the definition of that word, but what is what does that word mean to you, both like looking in the mirror, but also in looking at those other people on the mountain and, and the people who are going through the treatments as well? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, to me, I define it as the opportunity to live a normal life, whether you do, you know, something amazing or whether you just live every day, like that is, that is the definition of survivor. And I think that, you know, not everybody gets that opportunity, unfortunately, you know, for me going through it as a kid, I looked at cancer as just one thing that I have to do in order to become a normal kid. And, you know, it was really hard as a kid to wrap your mind around, like, why do I have to do this? And my friends don't. Um, and that that can be challenging. And it's certainly like a mental aspect to it. Um, but I think as an adult, I look at it and it's like, man, I'm so lucky. Like I was diagnosed as a kid. For one, I didn't have a career. I didn't know any better. I just knew that I had to go through this. And so I did. But I look at it as from the adult perspective, and I see these people out there who've been diagnosed once, twice, three times, you know, they've gone through it multiple times, they have their family there, they've kept their support, they've kept their zest for life, they've kept all these things. And like, that is the definition of survivor, like these people are living and living every day to the fullest. And, you know, really relishing every day that they have to be alive. And it puts that in perspective. And, you know, when you contrast that with those who have yet to go through it, it's like, we understand that journey and we understand how hard it can be. And I think that, you know, looking at it, it's like, I want to do everything in my power to make that treatment that much better for them. So if that means raising money, if that means, you know, volunteering my time, I'm happy to do it because I understand how hard it and how lonely of a road it can be because you go through this and suddenly you're just, you're kind of isolated. You have this huge challenge in front of you with no uh, certain pathway. You don't know where you're going to go next. You don't know what's going to happen next. And at the same time, you, you, you're going to navigate it on your own. There's not too many people that are going to jump in for you. Um, so it really puts it in perspective when you see people jump in and support others who go through this because it is just, you know, a tough process. How can people out there support 
these efforts? I think the number one thing is just be there for people who are going through it. You know, if you hear of somebody that's diagnosed, you know, you can ask what you can do um, and you can be involved in their life. But sometimes it's just as simple as being like, I know they're going to need this, so I'm going to bring it over. You know, I think that is that's one thing. But I also think like we all get tired every year of, of the ask for money at the end of the year or the ask for money all the time. There's there's countless of ways and opportunities to donate money to causes these days and they're all valid and worthy causes but when you have that personal connection to something or if it's something that you know like give them give them the the 10 bucks you know the 20 bucks i think it makes a huge difference um and if you can't give the money volunteer the time you know if they're doing an event or they need help driving you know kids to school or picking up groceries or whatever like that takes 10 minutes out of your day and it can mean all the difference in the world. And that's a great way to support people who are going through it. Wow. Brian, thanks for living such an amazing example for other, for all of us, but also in giving back and giving an opportunity to so many people, both in terms of the skiing, in terms of the leukemia, in terms of life in general and living fully. So thanks for doing all you do. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I'm happy to do it. And it's yeah, really a pleasure. Yeah. And thanks for joining us. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please tell your friends, tell your friends to tune in, tell them that these are great stories and they need to like us and they need to follow us and we will continue to bring you great content. So thanks so much. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.